Welcome to the Practice Podcast, conversations probing the nature of practice. I'm your host, Dave Firon. Harvey Dershon and I talked about an incredible life of adaptation, of masterful learning, of service from the heart, of moving every part of your brain into alignment with whatever new challenges are there when you arrive. He's like a human Rubik's cube of experience, knowledge, of learning, of connections, of wisdom. And I think by the end of this conversation, you get what I mean. I hope Harvey forgives me for comparing him to a cube, but with a lot of color. This is Harvey Dershin. Well, folks, here I am searching LinkedIn for fascinating people uh, because that practice that I see before me on, on a LinkedIn post sometimes just makes the bells ring in my head. And uh, the other day, I noticed a good friend of mine, Joe DeFeo, who has had two of these episodes, had put a nice comment uh, on a post by Harvey Dershin, who is in conversation with me today. And I read further and I thought, wow, this is someone else who said he's had at least four major careers, which we'll learn a little bit about. And even though he's retired, as am I, who are we kidding, Harvey? <laughs> we can't turn off these heads of ours. We, we, if the fire bell rang, we'd be out there. We'd be out there, exactly. With, with Maybe I'll be having carrying a pail of water, <laughs> being that I started before all this fancy technique, uh, technology began. But um, let's work from where you are now. I think one of the biggest concerns that we have is what has changed now given the COVID disruptions for anyone who wants to either resume a career or for the younger folks, start a career? Because that's something you were uh, featuring in some of your posts in, uh, in LinkedIn. So what's, the, what's your uh, prognostication for how to make career work these okay. days? Um if you don't mind, I'm going to pull up a document so I can refer to it, okay? Absolutely. Okay. Okay, so um, I wrote this, I wrote this, uh, this piece, as a matter of fact, for my son. Because my son has been an, uh, an educator for close to 30 years, but he's sort of tired of doing that and is thinking about a new career. Okay. And, and I thought, well, okay. I've had a lot of careers and I've learned a lot of things uh, from these careers. And, uh, and here are some of the things I've learned. And by the way, this, I think this uh, applies very much to your question about how COVID impacts on all of this. Yes. Oh, uh, as I said in my, in my notes here, I'm a mechanical engineer, by the way, and I, I spent uh, a good dozen years working in aerospace 
uh, focused on problems in fluid mechanics and heat transfer and, and both in application and in research. Mm -hmm. I really like that. But after a while, I thought, uh, in fact, this was in 1968, this happened. 1968, you will remember, was a rough year for this country. It, and uh, one of the had first real crashes that we had since. The, well, the, economically, but also we had people murdered in 1968. You know, a lot of stuff going on. Yes, bad stuff. And I thought to myself one day, you know, I don't have anything against the defense business. It's been fun and it's been exciting. And being a rocket engineer was always fun. I said, but I don't want to spend my whole life doing this. Mm -hmm. I want to do something else. And I didn't know what that was, but I knew that I wanted to walk away from the defense business and get into some kind of business which was more, shall we say, socially responsible. Yes. More addressing the, the needs of, of the country at that time. Mm -hmm. It took me a year to work this out. Um, I, I was at, at the time, I was the head of the aerothermodynamics group at General Dynamics. And I decided to look in the non-defense business. Wow. I have and to this say, was very hard to do, very hard to do in those days because people would even say with their, with their uh, postings for jobs, you know, aerospace engineers don't apply. Don't, 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 don't do it. Everybody thought aerospace engineers were like one-dimensional people. <laughs> to an extent, we were. We were highly specialized in a field. Sure. So it took me a year to get a job, and I got I took a job with a company called Bechtel, big construction company, and I got involved with industrial planning. And uh, I had never done anything like that before, and uh, I had to learn how to do it all over again. I mean, I left a job where I was the I was the head of a department of about forty engineers, and I came to a, a position where I was you know, one of three or four guys working in a small group who didn't know anything. <laughs> so so that, that goes to my first point, you know, things in the world of work change. You know, be willing to adapt and change yourself. And so over the course of a year, I learned how to do this work. I learned how to do industrial planning. I learned how to do a site planning. I learned how to I learned how to order uh, container ships. I learned how to figure out how many cranes, you, all kinds of stuff was all brand new to me. Wow. And it was very exciting. It was very exciting. It was lots of fun. And so that, that goes to the first point, which is things change. You know, don't get, don't get bogged down in where you are. In fact, one of the things that made me leave General Dynamics was um, I went to the coffee machine one day to get a cup of coffee. And the same guys were standing around the same coffee machine with the same gripes. And I thought, if I don't do something, I'm going to be here 30 years from now, standing at this coffee machine, griping about this or that. <laughs> oh, so um, I decided to change myself, and I did. And then a part of that... Another the, one of the points that I made down here is don't be afraid to take on new challenges. Be prepared to do the hard work necessary to learn new things. 
Now, you, you know Dr. Duran's uh, organization, mm -hmm. and you know TQM and all of that stuff. Yes, I do. And that was, you know, Duran, the Duran trilogy. And when I started working in, in process engineering, that's what I learned. You know, I learned TQM. And it was a very, you know, very potent uh, tool set and an intellectual tool set as well. But then out of the blue came Six Sigma and Lean Six Sigma. And all of a sudden, the TQM looked like somebody's old couch you know it just didn't <laughs> it didn't have the power it didn't have the power to do the kinds of things that you could do if you if you could do six sigma as luck would have it as luck would have it i had a network of friends who were into the six sigma world uh one of them had had uh, taken on the, the the lead of a company called rath and strong Mm -hmm. And another one took a job there. And she called me up one day and she said, Harvey, uh, we need people. Uh, you know, how about coming over here to Rath and Strong and helping us out? I said, well, I don't know anything about Six Sigma. She said, well, you can learn. You're a fast learner. So I talked to the CEO of the company and he said, well, he said, I'll give you three months to learn Six Sigma and then we'll put you to work. And so I, um, I thought, good grief. I haven't been into statistics since undergraduate school and I hated it there, you know. <laughs> what, what, in, what in heaven's name, how can I possibly bring all this stuff to bear? But you know what, three months later, I was out doing training and consulting in Six Sigma. Wow. Because I was able to, to, to scramble and learn new things which for me and and that was a continuous process you know in the six sigma world it's constantly getting more and more sophisticated yes so that's the bullet about don't be afraid to take on new challenges and do the hard work necessary to learn new things i've heard people say well i can't do that job that's not my training well it wasn't my training either you know but i learned it i, I locked myself in my office and i've got a shelf full of books that I read through, and by the time I walked out, I was conversant in Six Sigma, conversant. And I was more comfortable dealing with statistics. So that, 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 these things made, made a point to, to me. Another thing that happened in my career was that uh, when I was working at Bechtel, we had three projects to do. One had to do with the redesign of a, of a major port one had to do with an economic development study and one had to do with the development of a network of healthcare clinics for poor people and all of those jobs came out of new orleans for some reason we had a we had a, a salesman in new orleans and he was selling these jobs so i got dumped into these jobs one after another and uh, and what did i know about healthcare i didn't know anything about healthcare but I had a dear friend who was chief of anesthesiology at one of the Kaiser hospitals in California, and he would be my consultant. And I would call him up and I'd say, so now, how do you design an x-ray room? What, what does it look like? How big is it? How many, how many exam rooms do I need to take care of so many patients? And he had all these numbers. Kaiser has all these numbers. So before I knew it, I became expert in designing healthcare facilities. 
and okay. uh, and and that went a step further when I was invited to New Orleans to move to New Orleans mm -hmm. and actually uh, take on consulting in the development of these facilities. And I worked there under a Model Cities grant in those days to uh, to develop healthcare facilities. I did that on paper. And then one day, the uh, the management that was handling all of this stuff fell apart. Mm -hmm. And most people got fired. And I got one of these midnight calls, Harvey, we want you to take over running these clinics. <laughs> Here we are again. <laughs> Building and running these clinics. I thought, okay. <laughs> what did I know about working in poor neighborhoods in New Orleans? Nothing. You know, what did I know about the construction in terms of building small clinics? Nothing. But I, there was there was no escaping it. So I took the work. And um, it was extremely successful. We were, we, we built clinics, we served patients, we had 50,000 patients enrolled in the first year that we were taking care of in New Orleans. Wow. So, you know, it's a new challenge. I had to learn a lot of stuff, you know, to, uh, to get to it, but it was a, it was a big success. And, and you grow with things like that. You grow personally uh, as a project manager, which is probably where I grew the most as a project manager, mm -hmm. because you have, when you operate healthcare clinics, you have issues day to day, hour to hour. People come in, they're sick. People come in, they have a problem. What are you going to do about it? You know, mm -hmm. you can't say, "Well, uh, 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 go see your doctor." No, you're the doctor. That's right. That's right. So, uh, again, this business of taking on new challenges and doing the work to learn how to do this stuff is a uh, it's a big challenge. But it's an enormous growth experience, an enormous growth experience. It must have and, felt. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. I'm Bang sorry. Not here. I know, but I, I'm, I'm hanging on every word. But I'm just thinking now about what you said about growth. But I'm picturing all of the people who previously had very little or very poor access to healthcare, and then because of all the other elements of your knowledge that you could put together in in that moment they could walk in and get treated you were saving lives you were putting people back to work who were injured you were looking at babies who probably are now <laughs> you know have their own grandchildren and, I, and i've got a million stories about that because and it was new orleans and we all know what happened to new orleans uh, probably a few <laughs> years with the with the terrible um hurricane uh, we, we had a, we built a clinic in the Desire Housing Project, one of the roughest housing projects in the world. We built a clinic right in the middle of it. And uh, the fellow who was medical director, who I hired, called me up one day and said, are we open yet? He said, well, I don't think so. We've been stocking and, and I thought we'd have a ceremony, you know, or something, ribbon cutting. I said, why? He said, I've got a dozen people standing on the sidewalk who need to see a doctor. Mm. I said, we're open. That's it. That, that, that so fulfilling. It, it makes me wonder of all the things you've said so far that you left, 
now you're where you really wanted to be in 68. I want to be using my life, my talent, and my ability to relate, network. I wanted to be doing it where it's going to make a difference in people's lives. And there you are. You yeah. Were, uh, how long did you stay with that? Uh, I was in New Orleans. We were in New Orleans four years. Mm -hmm. And uh, then they hired a local person to actually, uh, from the community, to actually run these clinics. And he took over. Sure. And I was thanked and, and set to the side. And then uh, I came up to Chicago. I got a job in Chicago. And uh, I went through this, this um, thought process. I had three kids. They were all getting ready to go to college. I was working as the director of the Illinois Family Planning Council, mm -hmm. which was a, a management agency for family planning in Illinois. And it was like a public health job, you know, and they don't pay oh, very much. Yeah. You, know, they, you don't get exorbitant salaries in these jobs. No. Uh, I said to my wife, I don't know how we're going to send the kids to college, you know, without going into debt. And of course, she wanted them to go to the best colleges. And uh, I thought, well, I learned something in New Orleans uh, called closology. Closology. I haven't heard that one. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this, a New Orleans story. Okay. Uh, one day I was wandering around in the French Quarter with a, a colleague of mine, and we ran into a fellow who was a state senator in Louisiana, and he was also a, um, a wealthy oil entrepreneur. And we got to chatting with him, and we said, you know, how did you get to be such a successful oil man? Well, he said, uh, I first tried that using geology. I hired geologists to find out where the oil should be and I drilled and it was terribly unsuccessful, he said. So I went back to my old way of doing things. I, uh, my old way was to find out where someone else had struck oil and then drill as close as he could to it. <laughs> and he said it worked every time. He said he called it closeology. Yeah. So here we are up in Chicago and uh, I've got three kids to send to college and a meager bank account. And I said, well, I got to get some kind of a job where I can earn more money because I'm not earning enough money right now. And I thought maybe I can do, maybe I can think through closeology. Again, something new. And I thought, well, let's see. Well, I like working in healthcare. So I think I'm going to stay in healthcare. I said, where's the money in healthcare? Well, the money in healthcare at that time was mostly in the pockets of physicians. Yeah. So I said, if I can get some kind of a job working close to physicians, maybe by closeology, things will rub off and I can yeah. find a place, a niche some, for myself. Yeah. And uh, as luck would have it, uh, uh, there was a fellow who handled the banking for our, our organization. And he said to me one day, Harvey, I'm looking for people who have financial savvy to be on the, on the, on the uh, finance committee of this hospital uh, where I'm on the board. Would you be interested in being on the finance committee? So what do I know about hospital finance? I don't know anything about hospital finance, but you know, you're an engineer. Engineers can learn anything fast. 
So yeah. I was on the, I got to be on the finance committee and it was very good. I did, I put in constructive work. And then one day my friend's picture appears on the front page of the Chicago Tribune. He was arrested for embezzling money from his bank. Ooh, ooh. Ooh, not a good thing, you know? Not a good and thing. about two hours later, the chairman of the board of this hospital calls me up and said, so-and-so is, is, is in a lot of trouble. He can't be chairman of our finance committee anymore. Would you be chairman of the finance committee? And I said, well, sure. So the next thing I knew, I was chairman of the finance committee of this hospital. And I learned a lot about hospitals. And, and then, you know, things moved along. And, and one day, the, uh, the president of the hospital, who was a really fine man, came to the board, and I was now on the board of the hospital, all volunteer, no, not paid positions. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, we're trying to hire a senior vice president for professional services for months now, but we're not, we're not paying enough money. I need to get the salary cap moved up a little bit. So the board approved it. And I went home that night and I said to my wife, you know, I could do that job. Yeah. I could do that job. And she's, and I said, but it's kind of embarrassing here. I'm a board member. How can I, you know, how can I, how can I push myself in front of the, the hiring committee? He said, well, why don't you call the president of the hospital? So I did. I called the president of the hospital and I said, look, uh, this may sound a little bizarre to you, but I think I can do that job and I'll do it for the lower salary. You don't have to raise the salary. Oh, and you know, if music to his ears, <laughs> which music to his head. And I said, if you, if you like it, I'll stay. And if you don't know, you can fire me. So that's my final point. You know, when luck puts a good opportunity in front of you, jump on it. So here was an opportunity. I jumped on it and I was at the hospital for 14 years, you know, Wow. Ended and, up executive VP of the hospital. And how did and, that, and that was fun too. That, that role, was that uh, basically back to your uh, closeology? Was that professional services largely re, uh, in recruiting and developing? Uh, no, no, I had, I had budget authority over the whole nursing department, all the therapy yeah. departments. Yeah. Plus I had responsibility for coordination with all the physicians keeping them in line, getting them in, getting them out, getting them out of trouble. Wow. It was a big job. That's a lot of moving parts. A lot um, of moving parts. Uh, but you know, the, the wonderful thing about a hospital is if you want to know what you're doing on any given day, just get out of your office and walk around the place and you'll see there are people in beds who are being served, you know? Uh, that, and that is big for the spirit too. You yeah. know, as you were looking at back then, I assume you had spreadsheets back then, but... Uh, you know, you're looking at numbers, you're looking at tables, you're looking at reports, but to walk out, walk out on the floor and, and, and act, have conversations uh, with a dedicated nurse. I mean, there's a lot you could learn. Uh, now, while you had to do some massive learning to make these career jumps, Harvey, uh, when you're in that 14 year position, what sort of uh, learning challenges pop into your head that you had to meet? And here's why I ask, because the environment, the externals of healthcare in hospitals, large hospitals, was changing constantly during those 14 years. So not much stayed the same, I assume, but how'd you keep your edge? Okay, so uh, that's a very good question because, uh, you know, when I first started working at the hospital, 
it was run on what I would call the old hospital model. Mm-hmm. That is, the doctors were in charge of everything. If they said jump, you know, everybody said how high, and the whole the whole activity was to be uh, take care of the doctors. But as we began to move into different times, when the government financing of hospitals changed dramatically, uh, we had to figure out how to run more efficiently. And that's what took me into process improvement at process improvement. And I I met a guy, I read an article by a fellow named Don Berwick, who you probably know. I do. And I was very impressed with it. And I communicated with Don. And I said, is anybody else doing this quality improvement in hospitals? He said, yes, we have a whole organization, you know, come to Boston, come to our seminar. And so I, I did that and I gave some papers at his seminars. And so that closed the loop for me. Nice. Um, I say, uh, that's how I got into process. I got back to engineering, if you will. You back know. to engineering, back to Sig Sigma, back to the uh, right. the roots of Dr. Duran's thinking, uh, right. all, all in an extremely dynamic, uh, complex organization, uh, which... Uh, so, so you asked how I learned things. I'll tell you, we were in a situation in the hospital where the funds were being cut dramatically because the feds changed the reimbursement methodology. Yeah. And this hospital, which for years and years always ran a profit and a surplus and was very comfortable, family hospital, all of a sudden was losing a million dollars a month. Mm. And, and, we, and we brought in some consultants from one of the big eight accounting firms and they came through and they you know, spent a lot of time writing a report and they gave a presentation showing how, how dumb we were all for letting these opportunities go by. <laughs> and, you paid for and, that, huh? <laughs> yeah, we paid for that. We paid a lot of money for that. Uh-huh. And, and so, I, so after this all went by, I met with one of the consultants and I said, well, what are we supposed to do now? You know, because we've already, we've made some budget cuts. So we would stop losing money. I said, now what are we supposed to do? He said, well, you're going to have, you have to have to improve the processes. I said, how do you do that? He said, I don't know. So I was sitting in my office one day and I thought, the only way to find out what's really going on in this hospital is to actually work, work the boards. And so I came in Monday morning with a pair of white jeans and a white polo shirt and I got assigned to a nursing unit as a nurse's assistant. And I worked practically the whole week, you know, as a nurse's assistant. And I got to see all the things that didn't work. Yeah. All the things that didn't work. Yeah. And I remember going back to my office Friday afternoon, exhausted. It's very hard work being a nurse. Yeah. Thinking, okay, the hospital is not working. Now what? <laughs> so, 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 now what took me to the hospital's library? The hospital had a little medical library in the basement, you know, with a, I don't know, a few hundred books there. I thought maybe I'll find something in the library that'll give me a, a thread as to how to fix things. And I came across a book by Mary Walton called The Deming Management Method. Remember Mary Walton's writing? Yeah. I read the book and I thought, Holy mackerel, this is it. You know, I realized all of a sudden the hospital was made up of a myriad of processes that had been 
you know, grown over the years ad hoc ways by mm -hmm. hook and crook or throwing you no know, personnel on them. Nobody had ever really looked at the processes to see if they could be repaired. Mm -hmm. And that, that got me started doing process improvement. I did in the hospital. I did process improvement. I did about 20 projects in the first year that we started doing this because all of a sudden I had this firebrand in my hands, you know. That's right. We could look, you know, we started looking at things as processes. You see stuff. See stuff, exactly. So that was... The you had the authority. I, I assume we also had the authority once your teams found out, your project teams found out what could be done differently. You had the authority. Not so to easy. Say, not so, ahead, not, so, you know? not so easy because after a while, people started saying, "What is this crazy stuff you're doing? What, what are you doing? You're having people, you know, drawing pictures on walls and, yeah. and making, uh, you know, making diagrams on walls. What, what is this all about?" Yeah, I said, "I'm making things better." Yeah. But so it took a while for people to understand what I was doing. My boss, fortunately, was, was a wonderful guy and he was with me all the way. Well, that, that's strategic. So there you are. You've, you've taken on, you're inside the, 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 the whale and you're Jonah and you're in, you're making him uh, or her, the whale, more efficient. And, and uh, so when did you get either take yourself out onto the beach or when were you ejected onto the beach to torture that analogy to Jonah? Yeah. Okay. So at some point the, uh, the hospital board decided that the president who was my boss uh, should retire yeah. because things we were struggling. So they retired him and I was exposed and they were recruiting for a new president. I applied for the job. But by that time, I had shaken up too many things in the hospital, mm -hmm. you know, and made things uncomfortable with some people. Mm -hmm. So I didn't get the job. They hired a guy, a young guy from Northwestern. He said, I don't need your position, so look for a job. Okay, now this, this takes me to my second bullet, which says, don't wait for things to change or go bad before you take action. Now, I fully expected something like this was going to happen. I, because we had been in, you know, in making, in introducing efficiencies, you don't always make friends. Mm -mm. And I had introduced some efficiencies and didn't make some friends. In fact, I had a big battle with uh, our chief of radiology over an MRI machine. Oh, yeah. Because we had, we had bought an MRI machine together with about four other hospitals and used it ex exclusively and extensively, was always busy. And the chief said, I need my own MRI machine. Well, they cost a lot of money, you know. And, Millions, and, yeah. I, and I said to the board, don't do it. And he said, I need it. And if I don't get it, you know, I'm going to be angry and whatever. Mm -hmm. So they spent a couple of million bucks, bought him an MRI machine. And it stood, you know, vacant about half the time. So anyway, I moved on. And moving on through Don Berwick, actually. Don Berwick sat on the board of the Duran Institute. And I got word to him and I said, Don, I'm looking for, looking for a job. And he said, oh yeah, we're looking for people at the Duran Institute with a healthcare background. That's right. So, so instead of waiting to get fired, I had really started looking for a job almost a year before. Because I had a feeling things were gonna go sour. 
sort of quietly putting the word out to friends, as as I see one of your bullets saying. Exactly you right. Know, you know, all good things must come to an end, but I don't want to be the good thing that comes to an end. I want, <laughs> I want to, I want to know what's out there. And so Don Berwick said, "Come, come here." He was the perfect guy. You know, he was on the board of the Duran Institute, mm -hmm. and the next thing I knew, I was at the Duran Institute. Yeah. And traveling, commuting from uh, Illinois to, you know, oh, to yeah. work in Connecticut uh, week every week. Not an easy commute. I mean, it's easy to get to New York, but from there, <laughs> it's a challenge. A long drive, country up to roads. roads. But you yeah. did it, and we didn't have anything like this technology back then. You know, no Zoom, no Skype, nothing. Right, all, right. It was all seats on airplane. But uh, it, it, I know it made an important difference. Uh, after you did that work, as I'm watching my clock to make sure I, my process doesn't overlap into uh, when my listeners can't listen anymore. And I know they're going to listen to this with great fascination. So they're saying, Dave, what did he do after Duran? Uh, so after Duran, uh, a friend of mine, you know, that, that third bullet says build a network of friends who can introduce you to potential employers. Yep. Well, Duran started shrinking. Yeah. You could see that TQM was going out. Six Sigma was coming in. And Duran tried to scramble to put some Six Sigma together, but they were behind the, they were behind the curve. Mm -hmm. And one of my close friends took a job with another consulting company called Rath and & Strong. And, uh, and she, after a, a few months there, she said, Harvey, Come on over to Rath and Strong. She said, "This is they need people. We got work." And uh, and I said, "Well, I don't know this Six Sigma stuff." She said, "You'll learn it." And so I went there, yep. and I was there for another seven or eight years till uh -huh. I started my own practice. Yeah. Now, uh, you started your own practice. That meant from that point forward, you were working on your reputation, your network, your your enormous learning ability. Uh, did you still have your eye in that one sector, healthcare, or were you ready to diversify? No, as a matter of fact, when I got to Rath and Strong, we almost never worked in, in healthcare. Mm -hmm. I've worked in every kind of business known to man. <laughs> uh, the last job I did was for a little company in uh, Asheville, Tennessee, that made a uh, part for a, a Honda uh, like carburetor, fuel control device. Yeah, yeah. And they couldn't make the part right. You know, it was failing and it was costing them a fortune. And so I got called down there to work on that job. So, so I've worked that, was, that had to be fun. I mean, the diversity, large, small, every sector, uh, your brain uh, was clicking, clicking, clicking as you absorb these different environments. Uh, is there a constant that you learned about the successful in this last phase, the successful people versus those who still struggle even after you couldn't help them anymore? Was there something about Client, you're talking about clients? Clients, yeah. Clients. Yeah. There there are well, you've done you've done consulting, haven't you, Dave? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So there are clients who are what you might call compliant, yeah. that is to say they're willing to listen, they have an open mind, they have a healthy attitude, they have good management, good management. And then there are clients who are doing uh, quality improvement 
reluctantly they're pushed into it you know yeah yeah and, you know the, the ones who are in the latter place are frustrating and and go nowhere no but you know i did a i did a three-year consultation at notre dame university mm -hmm. in uh, south bend and and the and the reason that all worked was because uh, uh, father jenkins who was the president of the university said we have to do this and his immediate uh, uh subordinate who was a senior vice president of administration said we have to do this and that's all it took everybody did it they're still doing it you know it's 10 years since i've been there they're still doing process improvement that is so satisfying man so it, it go it, it ends up going back to the leadership you know okay yes if the leadership supports it if the leadership is willing to take the time to learn it to support it to give people time to work on things to grow then it can be very successful and if they're in a hurry and they want things to change overnight then it's not going to work we've said a lot to people who are concerned about reviving or starting their careers in different phases in this conversation harvey it's it's a lot of gems there uh i want to point one more piece out that maybe some people are counting on uh to make things better computers technology artificial intelligence we we don't need to have smart adaptive people because we can sort of like the mri guy we can buy uh something that's going to do the work what's your thought on that well i worked on a job like that as a matter of fact uh, a couple of years ago and what the company was doing was they were buying little bots that they could put into their into their large-scale processes to manage parts of those processes yeah and the whole the whole idea was to find a little bot that you could plug in here or there or someplace else that would take care of this particular transaction yeah. let's say yeah and uh you know what i found was the ones who succeeded at that were the ones who took the time and energy to actually understand the process you know, and to be able to describe it in fine detail so that you could train the bot to do the work. There you go. The ones who failed at it, and I was brought in on this job, they had hired one of the big consulting companies to, to help them steer through this. The ones who, who were not careful in really understanding what the process was failed yeah. because the process was wrong. Yeah. You know, process well, they, they put the they put the bot in to the wrong process, which meant that it got uh, made, did more harm faster. <laughs> well, yes, that was one part, but also the bot was incomplete. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, people don't, people who work in transaction processes, you know, they think about keystrokes. Mm -hmm. Well, you have to know down to the keystroke what this process is. That's right. Because there's nobody to pick up the slack. There's, there's only a machine there. There's nobody to pick up the slack if something falls off in the wrong direction or something mm -hmm. breaks. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, I mean, I think it has a good future, but you, ha you have to be very, very careful about how you construct these, these bots and where you place them and what you expect them to do. And you have to control them. 
you know, you'd have to put a, a control loop around them. Remember Dr. Duran's control loop? That's right. That's, and that's one of the things I told them. I said, you got to have a control loop around these bots. Right. Otherwise, they can run off the rails and you'll never know it. You know. <laughs> well, I think you've had, you had all the careers you've talked about, enormous amount of satisfaction. I assume you got your kids through college and all the points of your life where you needed to be making changes and at the same time be a, a family man, a husband, all the things that I think we value. Uh, so I guess this is one of those moments, and I was asked this the other day because I'm 78 and I'm, I just got a, a nice award for a lifetime career. So I, they said, well, what are your, what are your last words of wisdom, David? <laughs> and I'm saying, don't say before you pass on because Dr. Duran lived to 103 and I intend to at least catch up with, with that. But what, what's your sort of uh, Harvey, uh, Dershin, Mom, Mo, what do you, what's the word to the world that you can give? Be adaptive. You have to be adaptive. Can't take things as fixed. Keep refining them. You have to be adaptive. The world is a complex adaptive system. Things always change and one has to be able to change with them. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. This has been a delightful conversation. I enjoyed it. Thanks for, thanks for calling me and involving me in this. Good luck to you. Thanks for listening to the Practice Podcasts, where we discuss practice with a capital P. If you'd like to hear more, listen in on Spotify, Automatic, and Apple Podcasts, or go to inactionresearch.com slash podcasts dash page. And if you'd like to learn more about social inaction and the nature of practice, head over to inactionresearch.com for more information. Thank you for supporting this show. We look forward to hearing from you soon.